This last week, I spent some time uh, down at the BSU library doing some research for some talks I had to give, and I was looking in a in an old magazine, and it in that magazine was an article describing the life of Howard Hughes. That was an incredible life. Here was a man who was very handsome. He looked a lot like uh, Clark Gable. Had a lot of women who were attracted toward him. He went out with movie stars. I think he ended up marrying one. And was just you know, very physically handsome. He was also a man who was extremely intelligent. He was an entrepreneur and an inventor. And he was able to turn that intelligence into money. He made a lot of money. When he died, his estate was worth over $2 billion. <laughs> I can't conceive of that. That's, and that's more millions than I can count. That's, that's a lot of money. And his power, or excuse me, his wealth bought power. The article went on to say that he owned a few governors, a U.S. senator or two, and even perhaps a president. But let me read a quote from this article. It was from Time, December. It says, Yet for all his power, he lived a sunless, joyless, half-lunatic life, a virtual prisoner walled in by his own crippling fears and weaknesses. The article went on to describe a man who would sit naked in his hotel room with all the furniture covered with sheets, because he was so afraid that there'd be a germ in his clothes or in, or in the upholstery of the chairs. He used to keep boxes of Kleenexes next to him to insulate his hand when he had to touch a glass or a doorknob so that he wouldn't get germs. When a visitor from the outside would have to come to talk to him on some business or some other necessity, he would go through a, a several-day decontamination ritual. He had all his fingernails clipped and his hair cut off and just scrubbed down for days. He, uh, he was, I believe, six foot four. But his diet that he placed himself on was so restrictive that he ended up weighing about 90 pounds. Here was a man that had all the resources you could imagine. Here was a man that, that threw all his resources, all his millions, all his intelligence, all his influence and power in his battle against death. But in April of 76, he lost. He died. You know, and the money that Howard Hughes threw at his battle against death is really just a drop in the bucket compared to what we as Americans spend on health in our battle against death. The uh, amounts that we spend on health care, on, on medical bills, are astronomical. I don't really have the figures, but I've seen them in the several hundreds of billions of dollars. We spend over $30 billion dollars on diet and exercise. That's apart from our medical bills. In fact, something that Brian Fisher told me about, said we actually spent over $2 billion on bottled water alone. That we extend and expend an awful lot of resources. Why do we do this? Why is this such an urgent need? Hebrews 2 has a, makes an interesting statement. Let me just read verses 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews says, Since then the children share in the flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same, that through death, this is Jesus, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, the point he is making is that Jesus became mortal. He became subject to death, just like we were. All through his life, he had to deal with death, his own people around him. And he finally died himself at Calvary in order to free humanity, who is, as it says in the, in the Hebrews, who is enslaved to the devil because of our fear of death. And you know, Satan's domination over us is not merely in, in fighting that ultimate fight to keep this body intact. That's a losing fight. I hate to be the one to tell you, but if our Lord tarries, you will die, and I will die. As the saying goes, there are two things we cannot avoid, death and taxes. And this battle is a losing one. But Satan's domination really isn't even principally in distracting resources toward this losing battle. He's far more subtle in his attacks. If you remember last week, uh, David uh, was teaching from 2 Corinthians 4, and he mentioned in verse 10 the dying of Christ, that Paul carried around in his body the dying of Christ. And David made the point that this isn't the ultimate death at Calvary. This is the process that Jesus went through, the dying that he went through constantly. And this is what's described in the, the verses right above verse 10. Turn back with me to, to 2 Corinthians 4. The verses right above, uh, 8 and 9, really describe what Paul's talking about in caring about the dying of Jesus. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. These are the things that Paul saw were tearing down his body. But these were also the things that were, for Paul, results of his commitment to obey the Lord and his commitment to love people. Some of these things were physical. Paul was arrested. Paul uh, was abused physically. He was beaten. 39 lashes, uh, two or three times. I can't remember which. He, was, he had rocks thrown at him. He, uh, in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, it talks about him spending a day and a night treading water. A day and a night in the deep. That's hard on your body to go through these kind of things. And Paul's commitment to the Lord brought him into these types of situations that were hard on him physically. But I think these things being described also include psychological and emotional trauma as well. That Paul really had to go through the agony of having friends turn their back on him because of his commitment to the Lord. In fact, many postulate that his wife left him because of his commitment to the Lord. And that's got to hurt. Paul had to go through the... the perplexity, the agony of trying to, to, to figure out how he could share the gospel with people he loved who just weren't open to it. And again, that takes a toll to keep concern for them, to keep praying for them, to not just write them off and give up. That takes a toll. And Paul had to struggle with confronting uh, people who were in sin. He did that in, uh, in 1 Corinthians with the, the man who was involved in immorality. And Paul knew what to do, and he knew how to do it. But those things don't come easy. Even when you know what to do, it takes a lot of agonizing, of really fighting it through, 
of getting the courage to do it, going through the pain of, 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 of actually finally talking to somebody. Paul would get discouraged as he looked around and saw the lack of commitment by people in the churches that he was involved in, that he had been involved in. And that, that discouraged him. It made him feel like his ministry was a waste. So all these things were pressures. In chapter 11, Paul describes these as a weight, a heavy weight he carried, a burden he carried of his concern for the churches. And these are the kind of things that were tearing Paul down. But Paul says, I'm going to live with this. I'm going to keep going. Why? You know, Paul was smart enough that he knew if he stopped telling people the truth about their lives, if he stopped telling people the truth about who Jesus Christ was, they'd stop throwing rocks at him. And that would be good for his health. His life expectancy would increase considerably. And if he stopped going through the agony of loving people, the emotional trauma of really caring, that would be good for his health. But he says he doesn't do that. Let's look at, at why. We're going to be studying this morning 4.16 through 5.10 of Second Corinthians. But let's just take the first step, 16 through 18 of chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says, these things are happening to me. These pressures are taking their toll. See, Paul's getting older. His body is caving in. A neighbor has a pumpkin she carved several weeks ago. That thing's kind of caving in. It's shriveling up. And that's happening to Paul. And he realizes that these things that he's doing out of his love for people and his obedience to the Lord are contributing to that. They're speeding the process. But he says, we don't lose heart. If you remember last week, David, or a couple weeks ago, David defined losing heart as batting out or, or burning out. I might paraphrase it, copping out. It means to get, distur- get discouraged and quit. To drop out of the race, to sit it out. And he's saying, even though I know this is happening, I don't get discouraged. I don't quit. I keep in there. I keep going. Why? He says, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. He says, those very same pressures that are tearing apart my outer man, my body, are the things that God are using to build my character. They're character builders. I don't know about you, that sounds a little hollow to me. <laughs> it's like going out on a blind date and them telling you, well, she's got a great personality. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like Paul's being euphemistic. We've got to find something good in this life. I mean, it's rough. And I'm getting torn apart. But my character, it's being built. He's looking for that silver lining in that dark cloud. Well, if that's true, if Paul is just being euphemistic... We have to realize that, that he's a chump. He's, he's really a fool. Because if you look at his language here, he's excited about what's going on. He calls the afflictions momentary and light, temporary and trivial. While this glory 
this character change that's going on in him, he calls heavy or weighty and eternal. And he's excited. I don't know about you guys. I think probably a lot of you enjoy shopping. I don't at all. I don't like to shop. It's a misery for me. However, when I do shop and I do find something that is really a deal, I feel good about it. Even though I spent money, I still feel good. And that's the way Paul's looking at this thing. He's saying, he's saying, I've got a great deal here. He says, there's no comparison. That the payoff is so far greater. I'm excited. I'm thrilled with the deal I've got. Well, how can Paul has this perspective? And, and often we don't. Where does he get this perspective? Look at verse 18. It says, looking not, or excuse me, looking at the things which Excuse me, one more time. Looking not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He's saying this perspective is gained as we look to things that aren't readily apparent, the things that, that, that don't present themselves right away to our eyes. And this word looking, in, in Greek it's, it's the word skopio, Scopeo, from which we get our word scope, as in microscope or as in telescope. And in Greek usage, it's often used of a guard, somebody who is watching and watching carefully. It would be very descriptive of the secret servicemen as they stand around the president's podium, that they're alert, they're looking, they're thinking, they're constantly watching what's going on. They're not getting distracted, they're not letting their mind wander, they are focusing and Paul is saying this perspective comes as we focus, as we keep coming back to and thinking about spiritual things. Christians have to think. And we have to think deeply and we have to think regularly. There has to be intensity and frequency in our thinking. The other day in one of uh, in my Sunday school class, somebody asked me if Christians are more intelligent than non-Christians. And I don't think uh, we are. Sorry, you guys. I don't mean to put you down. But I don't think we are. I think if you took a cross-section of Christians and a cross-section of non-Christians, that we would find that we have not been endowed with superior intelligence. God hasn't given Christians better brains. But I think that a person who has become a Christian and is a growing Christian will be a far better thinker than that person ever would have been had they not had anything to do with God. And the reason is, we have to think. We have to think about the claims of Christ. You know, if, if they're not true, we're taking a whole lot of abuse for nothing. It's pretty foolish. So we've got to seriously think through whether we're going to keep doing this. Whether it is true. Whether it's worth our time. We've got to think through what we're doing here, who we are. We've got to compare our lifestyles to Scripture and really think through, is this what God wants? We've got, we've got to come up with answers to these questions. And we've got to think about loving people. Scriptures are clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, okay, how? What do I do? It gives us some instructions in certain instances. We know how to deal with this situation, at least an outline. And we know how to deal with this situation, at least an outline. 
But in detail, we've got to think. Well, how do I love this person who is failing in sin? Do I confront him? Well, maybe. Do I just come and put my arm around him and say, I'm hurting with you? Well, maybe. And you've got to think through, how do I love that husband who doesn't appreciate me? How do I love that child who I just am having so much trouble with their, with their lack of respect? And how do I share the Lord with these people I love that really aren't open? How can I do it? How can I keep loving disagreeable people? And we've got to think. And we've got to think deeply on these things. Uh, a commentator by the name of Alan Redpath uh, paraphrases Paul's statement here. He says, Because I have looked, this is Paul speaking, Because I have looked and understood, because I have taken the time not to glance casually at spiritual things, but sat down and thought them through and examined them with my mind and heart until they came into clear focus, something tremendous has happened in my life. Because I looked so intensely, that look brought conviction. And you might be saying, well, that's easy for Paul to say when he thought he got somewhere. And I think I just kind of hover and say, no, where am I going? What's going on? I don't have the equipment Paul has. I don't have his mind. This is great for Paul, but what about me? I can't think. But realize you do have the equipment because the equipment you need is the Holy Spirit of God. And he's going to coach you. He's going to tutor you. And sure, you may not be as sharp as somebody else. You not be, may, may not be as quick at your logic and your reasoning. But you've got the same spirit. And that's the critical equipment. Not only can we not say, I can't. We've got to. That choice isn't left open to us to not think. But a lot of us don't. And therefore, we don't have Paul's perspective. And we stumble through life reacting to people and situations based on how we feel at the time. Uh, we don't understand why people are reacting, why we are the way we are. We don't understand even God's attitudes towards us. We don't understand why he accepts us. We feel like we have to earn his favor and we get caught up in a whole bunch of traps. And as a result, we live confused lives in which we get hurt and we hurt people. And we don't have God's perspective. We don't have this perspective that Paul has. And so we get discouraged and we cop out and we compromise and we get more confused. I'm a great believer in setting aside some time every day just to sit and talk with God. Realize we're not talking about some esoteric meditation technique that is known only by a few spiritual giants. And we're talking about just talking things over with God. Thinking them through until we're satisfied, until we've come to a conclusion. Not giving up on the process, letting him coach us. And considering what he says in his word about these things. That's what we're committed to. And it's something everyone can do. Not only by setting aside some time. And if you are, let me congratulate you and encourage you to keep setting some time aside every day. If you're not, let me encourage you to take ten minutes. Maybe in the evening when things have settled down, things are quiet, turn the TV off. And just say, okay, God, what should we think through tonight? And start thinking something through, talking it through with him. But there are other times available as well. When you're washing the dishes, think, now, should I really have yelled at my kid? Was that the way to respond to them? 
Or how can I love that neighbor whose house I can see across the way, but I don't really know? What, what, what would be a good way for me to share the gospel with them? Or as you're driving to work, how can I love that hurting friend? How can I love that relative that I care so much about? A lot of you are joggers. That's a great time to spend with God. Well, you got time to solve the world's problem when you're out there. <laughs> but spend it talking to God. Spend it thinking things through with Him. And God will work this transformation. You will not cop out. Well, let's look at the next section. <clears throat> he says, um, starting with verse 1 of chapter 5, for we know that if the heaven, excuse me, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as having put it on, we shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. I had some friends uh, who used to spend every summer up in Stanley in a tent. The whole summer in a tent. And at first they really enjoyed this. This was an adventure. This was exciting. They're kind of organic people anyway. And they, they this was back to nature. But it got old. (laughs) The tent started getting uncomfortable and inconvenient. I don't know about you, but for me, I think the thrill is gone in camping. uh, Tents are drafty and dirty. They're crowded. They're cramped. You've got no headroom. You're trying to pull your pants on laying down. (laughs) They're not terribly secure. There's a lot of things that go bump in the night when you're laying in a tent. And I personally like indoor plumbing. I'm fond of it. And I like having headroom. And I like having conveniences like refrigerators and a little bit more room. What Paul does is he compares our life in this body to living in a tent. That it's inconvenient at times and it's uncomfortable. And he says, I'm not worried about the fact that the stakes are being pulled out. And some of us have a few more stakes out than others. <laughs> I'm not uncomfortable that the stakes are being pulled out and the tents being folded up and thrown in the closet. Because when that happens, when this body is gone and worn out, I get a house. And a big one. A mansion. And it's got running water and indoor toilets. <laughs> and it's got headroom. And it's got all the conveniences I could want. And I'm excited about that. This isn't a death wish by Paul. It's a life wish. He's looking forward to the other side. He says, in fact, that we groan in this tent, in this body. I used to work with handicapped children. And one of, easily my favorite, was a little 11-year-old girl named Dawn. She had severe cerebral palsy. She could not control her legs at all. She could not control her mouth. I had to move her jaw for her for her to chew. She could only with extreme effort move her hands and very slowly. But she could communicate with her eyes. She could say yes and no and you knew exactly what she was saying by the way she opened and shut them. 
And you knew how she felt about it. Not only whether she was saying yes, but how emphatically she was saying yes, just by the way she used her eyes. She could communicate whole concepts with her eyes. They did tests on her, and she was an exceptionally intelligent little girl. And she loved the Lord. And she loved people. But she couldn't express that. She couldn't meet people's needs like she longed to do because she was trapped in a body that didn't work. And all of us, to some degree or another, are in a body that holds us back. And the older we get, the more and more it doesn't work. It doesn't do the things it used to do. And God continues to build that wisdom and love inside us, but our expression becomes more and more limited. And we groan. We look forward to that new body. Notice how Paul starts uh, chapter 5. He says, For we know that that this earthly tent is torn down. He doesn't say, We hope there's something there after we die. Oh, we speculate that it's probably this way. No, he says, We know it. We're sure. That's why I can be confident, because I know it. Well, how does he know it? There's two ways. One not mentioned here and one mentioned here. The one not mentioned here is that he knows somebody that's been through it. That Jesus has died and come out the other side and he says, come on in, the water's great. That reminds me of a, a Bill Cosby story. I uh, had a friend who had all of Bill Cosby's records and I used to love to listen to him. He has this one story about he and his wife who were swimming at this lake and he, first one ready, runs up, dives off the... Uh, the dock into the water and immediately his entire body screams. The water is so cold, it's like a one slap on his whole body. And as he comes to the surface, he musters all his strength and he smiles and says, Come on in, dear. The water is fine. <laughs> and his wife dives off the dock and as her fingertips break the surface, she stops in midair and does a fingertip walk <laughs> back to the dock and stands there yelling obscenities at him. But our Lord is a little bit more reliable than Cosby. <laughs> that we can trust him. That he has been through it. And the water's great. And he says, come on. Don't have a thing to fear about death. Now, death itself is not a pleasurable experience. But what's on the other side is great. The second way Paul knows is here in the passage. <clears throat> excuse me, verse 5. It says, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. You see, this desire that we have for this new body is stimulated by the fact that the Spirit has been placed in us. And that's a taste of what it's going to be like. His power in us is a taste of the goodness of what that new body is going to be like. Not only that, the Spirit is involved in us now, struggling against our corruption, the effects of sin on our body and our minds and our hearts. And he's struggling with us and for us inside. But one day, he, the Spirit of God, and I will leave this body. And we'll go to a new one. And the struggle will be over. And there'll be no more pain of confession of my failures. There'll be no more struggles against temptation. There'll be no more crying out to God for deliverance. All that will be over. And we will have a perfect harmony. I won't be hurting people anymore. I won't be being destroyed myself by sin. And that's exciting. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the first installment. The rest is to come. And Paul says, since we've got this down payment, we know the rest will follow. God's already invested enough in you that it would be too costly to pull out now. 
The first installment's been paid. And that gives Paul excitement. That also leads him into the next statement. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, being of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We have good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. This phrase, therefore, being of good courage, and then in verse 8, we are of good courage, is an interesting phrase. The, the concept of being in, in good courage literally means to dare. And he's contrasting this with to lose heart. He says, not only do we not cop out because of these pressures, and it makes us more daring. We want to go for it. We're excited. It gives us energy rather than draining our energy. The fact that this body is, is dissolving does not hold him back. This, the, the concept of, of daringness reminds me of a fireman who is ready to run into a burning building to save a child. Knowing that it's, it hurts to get burned. He's seen people burned. He's been burned. And Paul is this kind of fireman. He is daring. He's willing to run in and get burnt. He's been burnt before. But he knows that's what he's here for. That's what he's trained for. That's what he's doing here. And not only this, he has an ace up his sleeve. He knows that if this body gets burnt, he gets one that can't be burnt. An unburnable body. A better one. And that makes him fearless. That makes him courageous. He's still groaning because his body holds him back. He gets tired. He gets sick. It's hard to love when you're sick. It's hard to be sensitive when you're tired. But he doesn't give up because of that. He depends on that power of the Spirit to take him through that, to give him a taste of what it's going to be like. In these verses 6 through 8, he makes the point that being here in this body means we are physically separate from the Lord. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And he, he, he includes that statement to assure us that he's not meaning that we're completely separated from the Lord. Just physically. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We know he's here. We know his power. We know his presence and his love. But we can't reach out and touch him or see him. And he says, while we're in this body, that's the way it is. But when we get out of this body, we'll be able to see him. And that's what we really want. We're looking forward to that time with him. And that leads him into verse 9. He starts it with a therefore. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. How is this fact that he wants to be with the Lord so effective in his ambition? What he wants to do with his life here? Well, it's because Paul is so looking forward to that time with the Lord that he's not willing to have that diminished by anything that this world has to offer. He's not willing to be distracted. So there's no way I'm going to lose heart that I'm going to cop out. There's too much at stake. Let me try to illustrate it. If my wife Becky and I are separated, either I'm someplace else and she's at home or she's someplace else and I'm at home, I don't get romantically or physically involved with other women. Well, why? It's not because other women aren't attractive. It's not because I have something against these other women. It's not that it wouldn't be a pleasurable experience. 
It's that I know that if I did, it would ruin my time with Becky. That rather than that future time being one of, of building each other up, of, of, of sharing our love and our lives and our thoughts, it would be one of going through the pain of my confession and the hurt that it puts on her and the shame that I would be covered with. And I'm not willing to sacrifice that time with her, which is a priority to me, which I value greatly, for some momentary pleasure or some strokes to my ego or something like that. That's, it's not worth it. And I realize that, and that keeps me straight. It's the same thing as loyalty to a friend. If, you're, uh, if you've got a close friend and you're with some people that are talking them down, putting them down, you don't join in. Why? Well, because if you did, when you saw that friend again, you would be ashamed. You'd be covered with shame. And you don't want that to happen. You don't want to sacrifice your relationship with that friend, that time with the friend. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. That he knows that he's going to be before the Lord. And he doesn't want to be ashamed. He wants to enjoy it. He doesn't want that time blemished and diminished by his embarrassment and his shame over the way he acted, the way he conducted himself. And this is what he's talking about in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now that's kind of spooky. This is talking to Christians. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense that's being paid back for that which we've done through this temporary body. That's scary. It scares Paul. He starts the next verse. Therefore, knowing the fear, the terror, the trembling of the Lord. We have a, we have a misconception that what we do here does not affect what happens after death. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Romans 14, Paul speaking to Christians, says we all must give account for ourselves before God. And there he's talking about judging other people, putting them down in our mind, saying that person always does this. Or that person is not a good Christian. And our, our, our kind of our, our, our negative vibes that we put on our irritation with people. He said, don't do it, because you're going to have to give an account for your attitudes before God. Paul didn't make this stuff up. In Matthew 16, Jesus uses almost identical words that we all must stand before the Son of Man and receive payment for that which we've done, whether good or evil. And Peter, in 1 Peter, says, judgment starts with the believer. That's sobering stuff. That should cause us to think, to pause. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul makes it clear that we're not talking about losing our salvation. But we are talking about the quality of that encounter with our Lord. We are talking about rewards being paid back. But what are these rewards? That's hard to say. I don't know. Some say, well, they're crowns, because James calls it the crown of life, and, and uh, Peter calls it the crown of glory. And in Revelation... We receive crowns, but I tend to think this, these crowns are symbolic, and I'm not too sure of what. Uh, some postulate that it is of responsibilities, that when we get to heaven, we will be given different responsibilities. And that's sure consistent with the parable of the talents that Jesus gives, and it's consistent with the way he created us, that we as human beings thrive on responsibility that we are prepared and equipped for that we, we are fulfilled as we fulfill responsibilities when we are able to. 
But I'm really, frankly, not sure what the reward is. But I am sure that it has something to do with satisfaction or shame before our Lord. Colossians 3, verse 4, he says, When Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him. See, people are looking at Jesus now, and he was a smart man. But he was pretty weak. He was not really that significant. But when they see him when he's revealed, they'll say, My God, he's the Lord of the universe. He's the king, and they'll fall to their knees. They'll say, I didn't realize this. And look how he loved me, and I didn't believe it. But not only that, we will be revealed with him. Those acts of love that went unnoticed and unappreciated will be known. Boy, this is a great motivation for me to love people when nobody knows about it, when they don't know about it, or they don't even appreciate it. That, that husband or wife who has not appreciated you, but you've loved and you've loved and you've loved and they've taken you for granted, they'll be confronted and they'll say, my gosh, that person loved me. She really loved me. And I didn't appreciate it. That friend who you had to confront with their sin, who thought you were just obnoxious and meddlesome, is going to say, my goodness, I didn't realize the pain they went through to make this decision, that they loved me enough to make that hard of a decision. And they're going to have to face it. Children are going to be confronted with the sacrifice of their parents. Society is going to be confronted with our our prayers, the love expressed, and our concern for the effect of sin on people and on our society. Right now, they just think we're sticking the muds. We're reactionaries. But that's not it. We love them. And they're going to see it. Boyfriends and girlfriends are going to realize that our firm moral stances were choices of love. That we weren't just scared. That we weren't just uh, uptight. But we were loving. All that is secret will be made known. And this is is motivation to keep on loving quietly, consistently, constantly. But there's the other half. Not only is that glory, that reflection of Christ in our lives, which is what glory really is, his character coming out of us. Not only will that glory be made known, but so will some shame. A lot of you may be feeling, well, what's the use? There's enough shame already piled up that it's going to overshadow any glory that might come my way. But I think there are some encouraging words. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 31 and 32. Paul says, But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, what's going on is two things. One, we've got an opportunity to judge ourselves. To confront our failures and our sins. To keep struggling against sin. To keep admitting it. To keep coming back to God. And God is involved in a process with us right now in cleansing us from these things. See, I'm convinced that that which is going to bring us shame is not our failures and our struggle against sin. The fact that we struggle is a sign of God's glory in us, the Holy Spirit working in us. And that will be to our glory and to His glory. No, the things that are going to bring us shame is where we've stopped struggling against sin. When we've justified it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us. 
But when we hide from the light, when we justify our attitudes and our action, on that day we'll be revealed as fools and we'll be ashamed. Well, how do we deal with this? It's appropriate this morning that we're going to be sharing communion together. This passage there in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 is really in the context of receiving communion. And communion is a time that God has given us to examine ourselves. Look at verse 28. He says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. So I want us to do that. As the men come forward, pass out the bread, I want us to take the time to examine ourselves, to judge ourselves, to take the stinger out of death so that there is no shame there. If we confess these things, if we open ourselves to the Spirit, we'll be forgiven. We'll be cleansed. Our fear of shame will will disappear. If we harden ourselves, it will only multiply our shame, having passed up another opportunity to receive His grace and His freedom and His cleansing. Are there people who you are resistant to loving, unwilling to do what it takes to love? Are there people who you're not forgiving or who you haven't asked forgiveness of? Are there sins that you're not fighting in your life? Let's just take this time to be quiet, to talk it over with His Spirit, to agree with Him when He puts His finger on things so that we might come into His presence without shame. Father, we confess our failure, our inadequacy for righteousness, for love. We need your spirit struggling within us to keep us from giving up and dropping out, to give us courage, to give us your perspective. We are dependent on you, and we can only come and receive your forgiveness and your undeserved grace. We just praise you for that, for the, the price you paid in sending your Son and breaking his body for us, freeing us from our fear of death. We just praise you for your goodness. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Having confessed, we're cleansed. And there should be no blemish on our expectation, our excitement of seeing our Lord. That our anticipation of these new bodies should really take hold of us. What we have to look forward in being with Him and seeing Him face to face and experiencing everything that we only taste now. As we receive the cup and as Carol sings to us, Let's rejoice in, in what God has done for us, in the provision he has made for us, in the future that he is holding before us. Let's let that, those thoughts sink deeper and deeper and start to affect our attitudes and our priorities, the things that we look forward to, the things that are important to us. In the same way, when he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Lord Jesus, we do pray that you come quickly, that you free us from these tents. But Lord, we pray that as you tarry, that you give us a boldness, a daring in loving the people that you've put into our lives, of loving quietly when it's unknown and unappreciated. Lord, we just ask that you bring us to yourself constantly to learn how this love is worked out, to think through our lives, what's going on, what we're doing and why, what you want, who you are. Lord, we know that were it not for your spirit, repeatedly and consistently drawing us back, we would wander far. But we praise you that you do not let us go. Just draw us back over and over. Thank you for your incredible grace. Amen.